I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we examine scripture through the usage of symbols and archetypes to discover what they can teach us about ourselves and our own lives. For the past month, according to our reckoning of time, Joseph has been in a place of shame. Four weeks ago, Joseph had a couple of dreams, two dreams, in fact, in which something was being foretold. Joseph was going to be raised to a position of great honor, a position of honor over even his father and mother. Joseph, the eleventh son of Jacob. Joseph, the first son of Jacob's favored wife. Jacob himself had given Joseph a place of great honor. Now this action on the part of Jacob, it's something that we'll find out later, is contrary to the way that the people of God should act when in this situation. Deuteronomy 21, 15-17 says that when a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, and they have borne him children, both the loved and the unloved, the firstborn son is of her who is unloved. Then it shall be, on the day he makes his sons to inherit his possessions, he is not allowed to treat the son of his beloved wife as firstborn in the face of the son of the unloved, who is truly the firstborn. But he is to acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. Now it was this, coupled with Joseph's own pride in his position, that caused his brothers to hate him. They said, Who is he to rule over us, his older brothers? Who is he to usurp our rights as older? And yet, there's something else here that might add to their hate of their brother, which we'll examine today. So with this, though, a contest begins. A contest of will and wits, as Reuben seeks to use Joseph as his own redemption, the tool through which he can regain favor with his father. The other sons, they want to destroy Joseph for the sake of their honor. Now, this is something that we've seen before. This is what Simeon and Levi did in Shechem. Now, it's not that big of a step to go one step further and to kill a single upstart brother that they don't like. But then there's Judah. He doesn't want to see Joseph dead. He simply wants Joseph gone. If Reuben has his way, Joseph will eventually die because of the vengeance of his brothers. And so he proposes the only course of action that will keep Joseph alive. And don't get me wrong, Judah did not do the moral thing in this. He did the right thing, though. He preserved Joseph's life, and he created the way that would fulfill God's promise to Joseph. From here, Joseph finds himself a victim of fate. He finds himself in the house of Potiphar, a powerful man with influence, and yet Joseph stays true to what he knows to be true. It's not long before Joseph is placed in charge of everything in Potiphar's house. The position is similar to the position of Eliezer of Damascus had in Abraham's house. 
In this position, and because of his good looks, Joseph becomes a desirable target for a woman who gets everything she wants. Uh, but Joseph doesn't play along. He remains true to God. He denies his flesh, and in response he is punished once more, thrown into the dungeon in Potiphar's house, reduced once more through unfair circumstances, brought to the lowest of the low. And in this place it must have seemed as if God were a liar. God had promised greatness and honor above even that of his father, but life had only shown him the exact opposite. Lower and lower he has descended in a downward spiral, and yet Joseph remains true and faithful. In his faithfulness, Joseph catches the eye of the warden of the prison, and he is once again given a measure of authority. His authority, though, is the authority of the prince of outcasts, criminals, and liars. After a time, two men are introduced to the situation. Two men who probably don't truly belong there, but who have been put there for some unnamed offense towards the king. After a time, these men, they both experience a dream in the same night, and the dreams similar in setting, but vastly different in interpretations. Again, two dreams. Perhaps Joseph recognized that God had not forgotten him as he gave the interpretations. He knows that one of these men is going to be put back in favor with Pharaoh, and so he secures a promise that when this man is back in his position, that he will tell Pharaoh about his own plight. The cupbearer leaves, and now it's simply time to wait for his vindication. And wait he does. The means of his redemption and elevation has been revealed to Joseph, and yet he's forced to wait. Why? Because the servant was a moron and unfaithful? Not at all, and that is one of the things that we will examine this week. Why did it take two more years for Joseph to even be given a shot at redemption and the position that God had promised? Let's read this chapter through verse 37, and then examine this question and more. Genesis 41, 1-37 And it came to be at the end of two years' time that Pharaoh had a dream, and he saw him standing by the river. And he saw seven cows coming up out of the river, beautiful-looking and fat, and they fed amongst the reeds. Then saw seven other cows coming up after them out of the river, ugly and lean of flesh, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the ugly and lean of flesh cows ate up the seven beautiful-looking and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. And he slept and dreamed a second time, and saw seven heads of grain coming up on one stalk, plump and good, and saw seven lean heads scorched by the east wind coming up after them. And the seven lean heads swallowed the seven plump and complete heads. Then Pharaoh awoke and saw it was a dream. And it came to be in the morning that his spirit was moved, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Mitzrayim and all his wise men. And Pharaoh related to them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I remember my crimes this day, when Pharaoh was wroth with his servants and put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker. Each one of us dreamed a dream in one night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dreams. And there was with us a Hebrew youth, a servant of the captain of the guard, and we related to him, and he interpreted our dreams to us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came to be as he interpreted for us, so it came to be. He restored me to my office, and he hanged him. And Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And he shaved and changed his garments and came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have dreamed a dream, and there is no one to interpret it. 
Now I myself have heard it said of you that you understand the dream to interpret it. And Yosef answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. Let Elohim answer Pharaoh with peace. And Pharaoh said to Yosef, See, in my dream I stood on the bank of the river and saw seven cows coming up out of the river, beautiful looking and fat, and they fed amongst the reeds. And then saw seven other cows coming up after them, poor and very ugly and lean of flesh, such ugliness as I have never seen in the land of Mitzrayim. And the lean of flesh and ugly cows ate up the first seven, the fat cows. Yet when they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. Also I looked in my dream, and I saw seven heads coming up on one stalk, complete and good. Then saw seven heads withered, lean, scorched by the east wind, coming up after them. And the lean heads swallowed the seven good heads. And I spoke to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. And Yosef said to Pharaoh, The dream of Pharaoh is one. Elohim has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. It is one dream. And the seven lean and ugly cows which come up after them are seven years, and the seven empty heads scorched by the east wind are seven years of scarcity of food. This is the word which I spoke to Pharaoh. Elohim has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. See, seven years of great plenty are coming in all the land of Mitzrayim. But after them, seven years of scarcity of food shall arise, and all the plenty be forgotten in the land of Mitzrayim, and the scarcity of food shall destroy the land. And the plenty shall not be remembered in the land, because of the scarcity of food following, for it is very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice, because the word is established by Elohim, and Elohim is hastening to do it. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man, and set him over the land of Mitzrayim. Let Pharaoh do this, and let him appoint overseers over the land to make up one-fifth of the land of Mitzrayim in the seventy years of plenty, and let them gather all the food of those years that are coming, and store the grain under the hand of Pharaoh, and let them keep food in the cities. And the food shall be for a store for the land, for seven years of scarcity of food, which shall be in the land of Mitzrayim, and do not let the land be cut off by the scarcity of food. And the word was good in the eyes of Pharaoh, and in the eyes of all his servants. Two years, two years still in prison, now, God had promised from the very beginning of the narrative of Joseph that Joseph would be elevated to a position of greatness. And all that is received since that time has been shame. God had even revealed the means of his redemption in the cupbearer. And yet, it was still two years before that elevation would occur. God could have given Pharaoh his dream the very next day, and Joseph would have been released, and he would have had nine years to prepare for the famine. Why wait? Why wait two more years of shame, poverty, and hardship in Joseph's life before delivering him into the place that he needs to be? Why not give two more years of warning, two more years of preparation? The easy and the usual answer is that God was simply waiting for the proper time, right? He was teaching Joseph patience. But is it something more, something deeper? I think that perhaps it is. So from the beginning of this story, I have steeped what's been occurring to Joseph in the idea that Joseph did not, in fact, deserve any of the things that occurred to him. Each bit of it looks to be completely unjust and unfair, promised greatness, and then brought to the depths of despair. Now, does God simply enjoy the emotional and mental torture of his servants? I know there have been times in my life where that seems to be the case, but it's not. So was all of this done simply to cause Joseph to learn patience? I mean, that's an interesting thought, but 
here, Joseph, learn patience, learn patience, learn patience. And now you're going to have to bust your butt for seven years straight. That doesn't, doesn't fit the narrative. doesn't fit the story that's being told. If it were the case, then when Joseph is finally released, what's the one thing he doesn't need? Patience. Now everything must be done immediately. The clock is ticking. Move, move, move. No time, no resources to waste. And you see, from Joseph's, and even from our own point of view, it seems as if life is being unfair to Joseph. But was it? There's something back in Genesis 37 that gives us hints that perhaps this entire trial that Joseph has faced has been an exercise to train some negative traits out of Joseph. A trial by fire, a refining of his character to make Joseph into the man that he needs to be. So let's take a look back, turn back to Genesis 37, and let's look specifically at verse 2. Genesis 37, 2 says this. This is the genealogy of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the young man was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought an evil report of them to his father. Joseph was 17 and he was feeding the flock. And he brings an evil report to his father regarding the sons of the slave women who had become Jacob's concubines. Uh, there's a couple things going on in this verse that we did not examine at the time that we went through it. And I haven't brought it up until now because I find it all too likely that Joseph may not have recognized this connection himself. And I think perhaps this is the reason for the wait in prison. In 37.2, the words, the Hebrew words used for this evil report are dibatam ra'ah. And the word deba means a defamation, a whispering or a slanderous story. Against whom? Whom did Joseph slander? Joseph slandered the sons of the slaves. He brought an evil report against the slaves' sons. Now, what is it that occurs to him in response to this? He is made into a slave, and he is slandered. You see, Joseph wasn't a perfect guy. And I've heard a lot of teachers say that Joseph has no sins ever recorded for him. But this slanderous report, whether they deserved it or not, it's not something that he should have done. He has his own issues to work through. His pride in his position of the station that his father had given to him, it seems to have gotten the better of Joseph. He thought himself better than the slaves. He thought himself better than their reputation. And he didn't treat them as if they were brothers. And so Joseph finds himself in the exact same position. Made into a slave. A, a person that those who occupy positions of honor and power don't care for. Someone of no importance. You can do what you want to a slave because they aren't really people. In fact, you can destroy what reputation they may have. That's not a problem. They're a slave. So why haven't I mentioned this before if it's right there? Well, I wanted to create a way for us to empathize with Joseph, to relate to him. I wanted to use this as an exercise that can reveal something about ourselves. Our initial thoughts as humans when we are faced with hardship is to react as if that hardship were unfair as if our suffering is something that we do not deserve. We all want to be Job, right? Persecuted because of our sparkling righteousness. But the fact is, is that we're usually Joseph or Jacob or even one of the brothers. We have our issues, and when God disciplines, he will do so in a way that speaks to us. 
forced to suffer through the fullest expression of the darkest parts of ourselves, forced to face down our own prejudices, injustices, and sins through the circumstances that life brings our way. God will create situations in our lives that will mirror back to us our own failures. And that is especially true if you are in a position that's called to minister to others. You will have to face and come to terms with your own failures and your own faults. You cannot minister to others while these are still intact. Otherwise, you are being one of the hypocrite Pharisees that Yeshua taught against. And the reason that I've held off on exploring this is because I want our own reactions to mimic Joseph's. It's unfair. Persecution. I didn't deserve it. I don't deserve it. What did I ever do? Because that's how we usually respond to persecution. Why do I bring it up now? Why did I wait a full month for this topic? Well, because this week we read of Joseph being given time to grow accustomed to the truth of the matter. Two more years passed in this lowest position of power possible. And during this time, he's being made to realize that there is no position too small to serve in the kingdom of God. If you are in prison, then be the best prisoner that the warden has ever seen. He is being tested in his faithfulness to the very, very, very little, so that he might be made worthy to serve when given a position of the very greatest. And Joseph was human. He was not perfect. He had his own faults. And just like most of us, when we're brought low, we rebel at the idea that it might be ourselves who have brought this on. We might even be so blind of our own prejudice that it takes an overact of repayment and then time to absorb the lesson before we even begin to recognize just how much we deserve it. I know that's the case with me. For the longest time, I lived in pride. A pride that I could overcome any situation, that I was resilient and resourceful, and that I would come out on top regardless of what life brought my way. I acted in prejudice towards those who did not have or who could not do. I blamed others for their laziness and their unwillingness to buck up and pick themselves up by the bootstraps and to make something of their lives. If they weren't succeeding in life, it was because they weren't trying. And all it took was some elbow grease and a bit of forethought, and anyone could raise themselves up to a position of comfort. And then God called me to this, the position I now occupy. And in this position, I was forced to re-examine my prejudices. How? I can tell you it wasn't through an intellectual exercise or by reading a book, but by being forced into a position that I would have never chosen for myself. I live in a single-wide, run-down trailer. I have a part-time job that brings in only the bare minimum of money. And the rest of it? The rest of it's fully in God's hands. I'm not lazy. I work, and I work, and I work at various tasks. I, I would work on that building, that fledgling community that I have found myself in the leadership position for. And for the longest time, I made nothing from that position. I wasn't making money for all of the work that I put into keeping it running. Uh, I would work on the Bible project that I revealed a few weeks ago. Again, something that was unpaid. And frankly, I only got paid for working on that for the very first time two weeks ago. Two weeks ago was the first time I made money on a project I've been working for three years on. I would do odd jobs for people who couldn't afford no one else. And I would let them set the price because they knew their finances better than I did, and I knew that they couldn't afford the social norm for what I was doing. 
for the majority of it, I would make $10 an hour, one day a week. And God brought us to a place that I did not desire, that I had unjustly believed to be a place of curse in others' lives. And I think he did so so that I could realize that I am not better than those who are poor. I'm not better than those who live in trailers or better than the homeless, which I've also been in, in my life. I've been caused to be these things through God's will. I've been tested whether I would be obedient to the point of being brought to the place that I thought I was always better than. But this was all in the past. This portion, this ongoing lesson is one that we should have covered when we passed it, but why now? Well, because this Parsha is once again a series of dreams, and there are for me only a few things that stick out in it. And the rest, most of us are very familiar with, and if you're not, read them through a couple of times. You'll become familiar with them pretty, pretty simply. The very first thing being verse one, two more years in prison. And then the revelation to Joseph that he's not better than those who are in this position. If Joseph had gone through these things and then been immediately rescued, he would have had it confirmed in his own mind I am better than that. The enemy tried to bring me down, but God knows my worth, and he has confirmed that I am not a person of shame. But the truth is that Joseph was a person of shame. He's a person who caused shame and hardship in others. And it took two years, two more years, for Joseph to learn this lesson. You are not better than anyone else. You are the lowest of the low if God chooses for you to be. The honor that is coming, that's not something that Joseph was doing or something that he even deserved. He was a tool, nothing more, a tool in the hands of the master. He was a slave. So after those two years, Pharaoh has his dream. He has two dreams, in fact, both dreams with one interpretation. And that's where we were four weeks ago. Two dreams, both with the same interpretation and result. Joseph raised into a place of honor. And we're all familiar with the dreams themselves, right? Seven cows and seven cows, seven heads of grain and seven heads of grain, seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And as we discussed last week, the setting of the dream that's being provided is being provided by the person experiencing the dream. The specifics and interpretation, though, are being provided by God. In the midst of the dream and the interpretation, there is a bit of narrative that's profound, as it can point us to and help us to understand another character in Scripture. So, after Pharaoh has his dream, he calls to him all of the magicians and wise men of the land and asks them for an interpretation to the dream. And they are unable to give an interpretation. And then the cupbearer informs the king of this Hebrew that he'd met while in the dungeon, who had the ability to interpret dreams. And the cupbearer, when telling of Joseph, essentially confirms that the dungeon that Joseph was in was one that was located in Potiphar's house. He then calls Joseph, not a prisoner, but rather a servant of the captain of the guard. That's the same title given to Potiphar in chapter 39, the captain of the guard. And so Pharaoh calls for Joseph to be brought to him. And then something fascinating occurs. In our English translations, most say that Joseph was brought out of the dungeon or out of the prison. In the Hebrew, it says that Joseph was brought out of the boar or the pit. Now, up until now, the place that Joseph has been confined has been called the Beit Sochar, the house of the prison. And the only time that it's referred to as a pit since Joseph was originally thrown into a pit in chapter 37 
is when Joseph is making his request for the cupbearer in the last chapter. In Genesis 40, verse 15, it says, For truly I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews, and also I have done nothing that they should put me into the dungeon. That word there is bore. It's the same word as before. And just after Joseph is brought out of the pit, Joseph is given new clothes. Verse 14, in which these words occur, provide for us a sign of a reversal of fortune. You see, chapter 37 and chapter 41, at least the beginning of chapter 41, they're stories in parallel. Get this, they're stories in parallel. That's why we, I began where I did. Because Joseph began with his slanderous accusation. And so this chapter begins with those two years in prison. Then we have two dreams back to back, both with the same interpretation. Then we have Joseph, who is given new clothes, who's brought in or put, taken out of a pit, who is raised to a position of power. It's the same story. So in verse 14, in the words which occur there, it provides a sign of the reversal of fortune, though, that's happening in this, because this parallel isn't exact, whereas in chapter 37, Joseph was thrown into the pit. In this chapter, Joseph is being brought out of the pit. So Joseph was thrown into the pit by his brother. This garment was taken by his brothers, and he was given to slavers. But now Joseph is removed from the pit. He's given new clothes, and he's brought to the king. Now, this entire time he was in the pit, not necessarily in prison, but in a, a pit of shame, in a metaphorical pit, especially like in Potiphar's house, where he was still a slave, but not necessarily in prison. But now all that had been taken from him is being restored, and not just restored, but it's being increased. And in this way, Joseph's story is very similar to Job's, everything being taken from him, put into shame for a time, and then everything then returned and increased. Pharaoh then explains the situation. He says, I had a dream, and I've been told that you can interpret dreams. And Joseph answers Pharaoh, but when he does so, he does not do so as the 17-year-old brat that thought himself better than the slaves. Instead, when he answers Pharaoh, he answers from the position of one who recognizes that he is simply a tool. He says, this ability is not something that's in me. It's something that is God's alone. So if I'm able to give you an interpretation, it's from God. It's not from me. And the dream is told to Joseph, and he offers an accurate interpretation. And then above and beyond, Joseph offers a solution to the problem that the dream presented. But even here, he doesn't say, put me in charge. I'll take care of everything for you. Instead, he says, look for a wise and discerning man and set him up to carry out this plan. Joseph is not presuming that he is going to be the one to do this. Perhaps he even expects to be returned to his place in the dungeon. The picture of Joseph that we get here is of a man who is resigned to the will of God, a man who accepts his place in life, who recognizes even that he only deserves to be the lowest of the low. Joseph has learned what it means to operate in humility, something that should define each and every one of us who are in Yeshua. So there's someone else in Scripture who has nearly the exact same story. Taken from a place of honor, put into a place of service, led in chains to a foreign nation, a nation that's thematically opposed to Israel, proven worthy in this place of service and distinguished above the place of those similar class and station. Then a king has a dream, and this man is raised up out of his lowly position to provide an interpretation. And the successful interpretation then leads to this man being raised to the second in command of the entire nation. 
The king then acts to fulfill the dream, and the man is bowed to and given honor by others. If you said Daniel, you would be correct. What I just told you was a quick recount, a high-level overview, of Daniel chapters 1 through 3. In Daniel chapter 1, Daniel was taken captive and led away in chains, not to Egypt, but rather to Babylon. And in this chapter, it states that those who were taken were descendants of kings and nobles. Daniel was a high-ranking son. He had a station of honor, and then he's taken into slavery. And in this place, Daniel proves himself to be better than his peers and all the captives of all the other nations. And then in Daniel 2, the king has a dream. And the king is unable to understand the dream, and so he calls in all of his magicians and his wise men. And this time, not simply to tell them the interpretation of the dream, but Nebuchadnezzar, he's a wily goat. He also has them tell what the dream was. Impossible, right? Well, when the magicians are unable to, the king commands that everyone be put to death. And rather than the king being told about Daniel, when the officers come to put Daniel and his friends to death, he requests to have an audience with the king. He then asks his friends to ask for God's favor, and God responds. And Daniel then praised God and thanks him for his interpretation. And in Daniel 2, Daniel goes before the king, and he opens with this. Daniel 2, 27-30 Daniel answered before the king and said, The secret which the king is asking, the wise ones, the astrologers, the magicians, and the diviners are unable to show it to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what is to be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, on your bed your thoughts came up. What is going to take place after this? And he who reveals secrets has made it known to you what shall be after this. As for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes, who make known the interpretation to the king, and that you should know the thoughts of your heart. Daniel gives glory to God for the interpretation. He makes it clear that the interpretation is not from himself. In fact, he debases himself and makes it known that this was not happening because of his own great wisdom, but rather for the sake of the lives of the servants of the king, and more importantly, that the king should then know what it is that God has told him. Daniel then describes the dream of the statue with four parts and then gives an interpretation. And how does the king respond? In Daniel chapter 2, 46-48, King Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face and he did obeisance before Daniel. And he gave orders to present him an offering and incense. And the king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the master of kings, and the revealer of secrets, since you were able to reveal the secret. Then the king made Daniel great and gave him many gifts and made him the ruler over the province of Babylon and chief of nobles over all the wise ones of Babylon. The king bows before Daniel. In the Aramaic of this chapter, this word is to worship and to pay homage. And then he offers a mincha. That's the same word as the Hebrew word mincha, a sacrifice, and a soothing offering, or a sacrifice. King Nebuchadnezzar worships Daniel as if he were God. And Daniel accepts this worship. Scandalous. Now, I've heard it said that Hebrew men won't accept worship from other men. And counter-missionaries will use this very claim to discount Yeshua because Yeshua accepts worship from his disciples on several occasions. But right here in Daniel, and as we'll read next week in Genesis 41, both Daniel and Joseph are bowed to. And in the case of Daniel, he's treated as a god. Or, more accurately, 
has an image of God. Nebuchadnezzar treats Daniel as an idol of yod heh And frankly, that's what God created us to be. I mean, we're created as Tselem, the image of God in Genesis chapter 1. And Tselem is a name for idol that we found already in the book of Genesis when Laban's idols were stolen. And we'll read throughout scripture that Selim are the idols that people have in their houses. But we are to be that image of the Most High God. And Daniel accepts this worship from the king because he realizes it's not himself that's being bowed to. It's his God that's being honored through this. And after all of this, Daniel is raised to the position of the second greatest in the kingdom. And the king, the king decides to take the dream and to make it a reality. And in chapter 3, he builds a great statue. And in his dream, the head was of gold, and the gold represented himself. And so in his statue, he makes it all gold, and the entire statue represents himself. He responds to this dream and to Daniel's humility by elevating himself to a position of receiving worship. He makes himself greater than the God of creation. He allows the fact that God would reveal the future to him as a reason to elevate himself above God. And that is an idea that the Hebrews simply can't get behind. And so we read the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Avednego. The parallels to these stories are there are too many to pass up. And the pattern is one that we must not miss because it is a pattern that's repeated in our Messiah. The prince of God in the heavens with honor and authority and power, lowering himself this time of his own free choice and becoming the lowest of the low. He becomes a man of shame, a bastard, conceived outside of marriage and outcast from a small village that no one respected. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, says Nathaniel, one of Yeshua's disciples. He was not raised to worldly honor. He was the king of the outcasts and persecuted by the great and the mighty. And in the end, his shame was doubled and tripled, and his body was led to death. Why? So that he might be raised up to the place of great honor in the heavens. So that he might be given all authority in heaven and earth. So that he might become the right hand of the king, the one who is trusted with all things, and the one who is faithful in his administration. The one who we bow before and worship because we recognize that God is in him and it is him that God trusts. Both Joseph and Daniel, they're archetypes of Yeshua in their own ways. They both reveal to us the pattern of being brought low and put into shame for a time for the purpose of testing and trial, only to be raised to greatness for the purpose of the kingdom and the purpose of saving lives. Yeshua is the one raised up above all others, and he calls us to walk in this pattern. We are to bring ourselves low to become servant and a slave of all, to debase ourselves before others in humility. And when we do so, God will, in our own time, raise us up to honor. And sometimes this occurs in our death and resurrection in Him. In Matthew 20, 25-27, it says, But Yeshua called them near and said, You know that the rulers of the nations are masters over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever wishes to be the first among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Sometimes being lifted up occurs through an elevation to a position of status and power among the nations. And sometimes in our world, being lifted up occurs through death. Now, death is not something that should be feared or avoided if you're in Yeshua, because through him, it's already happened to you. We simply have not caught up to that point in our own lives. Every time this occurs for the purposes of the kingdom of God and for the purposes of life. But we, we too, we get to operate in the role of Joseph, lowered to the bottom, made into a servant or a slave, given charge over very little. Towards what end? Towards testing, trial, proving, teaching, instruction. And all of that culminates in growth. This is what God does with us, what God does with his people. And this is especially what God does with those whom he has chosen to serve in a position of leadership. Being a leader in the community of God will require that you spend time as the lowest of all, not just for a season or a short time, but potentially for years, decades even. Moses had to spend 40 years approximately in Midian as a shepherd before he was ready to go back to Egypt and lead, before Israel and Egypt were ready for him to come back. David spent years running from Saul, persecuted by his own king, hunted by God's anointed leader, before he was finally appointed as king. Elijah spent more than three and a half years on the run from Jezebel and Ahab, and in the end he was elevated to the heavens, and he never saw a position of status on earth. Jeremiah spent a good amount of time in the bottom of a pit with mud, probably not mud, up to his waist. Isaiah had to walk through the streets of Israel naked for three years and suffer in a siege of Jerusalem by Sennacherib, and he too was never elevated to a position of leadership and great honor. And on and on and on. Scripture is full of stories of men and women who are chosen to be elevated to places of leadership by God, and in most cases, they had to go through a time of trial by humiliation. If these great men of Scripture were persecuted and asked to do the impossible, if they suffered shame and humiliation for years on end as a part of their path before their eventual elevation, can we complain when we face hardship ourselves? If for many of them they never saw a time when they were elevated to a place of comfort and plenty on earth, should we even expect that our own elevation will occur on this earth? Sometimes, like Joseph, we need to be trained, and God will introduce hardship into our lives for the purpose of molding us into the person that he needs. Sometimes, like Job, he will allow trial and testing simply to assess whether you will remain true, faithful, and obedient. And sometimes, like Isaiah and Elijah, he will introduce trial and hardship because that is the time we live in, and that is the place he needs us to be in. It is the place where we will be the most effective for his kingdom. Like each of these, though, we should not accuse God for our hardship. We should never assume that hardship in whatever form is a sign that he has abandoned us. Likewise, we should never assume that hardship and trial is a sign that he's going to elevate us either. He will deliver us when it is time, when the world is ready, when the kingdom is ready, and when you yourself are ready. We must simply respond as Joseph did. Find for yourself, O king, a wise man to lead, because you're going to need it. This doesn't always look like Joseph. Sometimes it looks like Peter, 
crucified upside down, or destroyed through torture and pain like John, beheaded in the court of king like Paul or John the Baptist. Each and every time, though, the individual was promoted, given their reward for being faithful and elevated to a position of honor. So the question is, will you remain faithful? When hardship and pain and shame surround you, when you are brought low, when life looks impossibly hard, will you remain faithful? Another question is, will you learn? When God brings you low, will you learn the lesson that he has for you in that shame? Can you recognize, like Joseph, that you deserve everything that's being poured out on you? And it's only God's love, mercy, and compassion that keep you from reaching the absolute bottom of the spiral. He is compassionate, and He loves you, and He disciplines those whom He loves. Discipline is not for no purpose, but discipline is to teach a lesson. Can we get past our own ego and our insistence that we are infallible and accept evil from His hand as well as good? Our insistence that this is unfair and impossible. Can we get past that? Until we do, we have not learned the lesson, and elevation to anything more is frankly impossible. And it's this lesson that life is more than simply the trappings of our circumstances. Too many times our culture will define living as having all of the right things or taking part in the right activities. But these are not life. Life is so much more than this. And we cannot lose sight of this as we derish high, as we seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare high, as we seek life. Shalom.